Hi, welcome to Vermont Untapped, a podcast from the Vermont Folklife Center that explores the state through the voices of its own residents. I'm Mary Wesley. I should say welcome back to Vermont Untapped. I'm hoping you've already listened to our first two episodes and that you've told all your friends to listen too. In our first few episodes, we heard a range of stories within two different communities, a drag troupe in southern Vermont and deer hunters around the state. In this episode, we'll hear from just one person, Major J. Francis Angier. In 2003, as part of the National Veterans History Project of the Library of Congress, Greg Shero and Erica Heilman of the Folklife Center began interviewing POWs who had served during World War II. Selections from these interviews formed the core of our documentary, Prisoners of War, a story of four American soldiers. It focused on a group of Vermonters who had been captured during the Battle of the Bulge. Over the course of our research, we interviewed several veterans who shared powerful stories with us about their POW experiences, but were not included in the documentary. This podcast is allowing us to tap into those unheard interviews. So, get ready to meet Major J. Francis Angier. Francis is a U.S. Army Air Corps veteran who piloted a B-17 bomber on 33 missions in Europe during World War II. He grew up in New Haven, Vermont, and always wanted to fly. In his youth, he flew solo at the Bristol airport before he even got his driver's license. But life's timing meant that he was called to war. What you're about to hear is the story of Francis's plane being shot down over Germany and what happened after that. You may hear familiar names and dates connected with the broader history of World War II. But what the Folklife Center strives to bring you through our interviews and field work are the individual, lived experiences of Vermonters, told in their own words. So it's time for me to stop talking. Here's Francis. That morning was very bad weather. It was wet and dark fog, and we had a hard climb up through. We got out over the North Sea, and as they'd told us in a briefing, it would be pretty clear, so we didn't need the radar, for the bombing, at least. And as we approached Helgoland, which was an island off the north coast of uh, uh, Germany and just west of Denmark, it was just a pile of mud mostly, but they had anti-aircraft there. And uh, I looked ahead, and we saw four bursts of heavy-caliber anti-aircraft. So I told the crew, I said, there's flak, 12 o'clock level. I said, check your flak suits and your oxygen. And just as the last man called in, I saw the burst start in front of us. I saw one, two, three, four right in the right wing between the engines, and I knew we were done for. The plane was a derelict. It had struck in the right wing between the number three and four engines. We could look right into the wing and see the metal turning red, and the outboard engine, number four, began to run away. In other words, I couldn't control it, and it went fa- turned faster and faster until it was just screaming. And it was always and it was tending to pull us around. Uh, number three engine was in bad shape and shaking, vibrating. Finally, it bent down and fell away. Took the landing gear with it and another big chunk of the wing. The engineer 
called and said, the whole right wing's on fire. Well, of course, I'd seen that. So I had the, the two outboard engines, number one and number four. And number four was making it difficult to control, so I opened the throttle on the number one to balance it a little uh, to keep it fairly level to allow the men to get out. I told them, I said, leave the aircraft. No way we could save it. And so the the two engines pulled the plane up into a vertical climb. And, of course, it couldn't sustain that for very long. And during that interval, I decided I'd better try to get out. And I got out of my seat and laid my flak vest over the wheel and everything. And I was standing with a hand on each seat. And, of course, it was in a vertical position, so I couldn't really move. I couldn't let go. And finally, all of a sudden, both engines stopped, and it started to fall tail first. And then it blew. It blew the whole right side and right wing and engine off the plane. And I felt as if I were being ejected up, upward and off to the right. Um... The co-pilot had left. There's no one in that seat. The uh, heat hadn't been a problem up until then. But when the plane went into a vertical climb, the fire was back in the bomb bay, and there was no fire in the compartment where I was, but there was heat, tremendous heat, enough so that paint was blistering on the panel. But anyway... It blew me out. I went sailing out and, of course, lost consciousness. Would have anyway because of the altitude and no oxygen. And I came to probably about two miles below that. I was almost six miles high. And uh, when I came to, my first thought was, I wonder if my parachute was damaged, being ejected like that, or if it was on fire or something. So I began to look at that, and I noticed I was covered with a layer of ice because that temperature probably was, uh, who knows, 150 degrees or more, probably more. And then I went out into 55 degrees below zero, and that's what caused that. And I was falling on my back. I'd seen a lot of men falling, spinning, tumbling. And I was falling on my back, and... And I, I found I could keep that position with my arms out and to keep watch of the wreckage. Now, normally when a plane explodes, like ours, you know, if you're going 300 miles an hour over the ground, it scatters the wreckage for five or six miles. But mine was falling tail first. The only big part of the wreckage was the left wing with the engines and the bomb bay, and that was spinning like a maple seed coming down right above me, two to 300 feet. And then off to the south, I, I knew where I was. I could look between my feet and see the Rhine River, look over this shoulder, and I was high enough so I could see the peninsula of Denmark, see the east and west shores. And off this side, I could see the Zyder Zee and the Frisian Islands. Um, off about a half mile, 
was the right wing with the one engine on it, fairly intact, but that was falling steadily. It was somewhat below me already and leaving the smoke, you know, dark smoke still burning. And uh, so I began to figure how much time do I have, you know, before this drifts off because I'd seen people open their chute and bang, the plane would hit it, either drag them down or hit them or whatever. And uh, I, I wanted to avoid that. So I kept watching for a space. I said, if I see a space big enough, I'm going to open this thing, you know. I rolled over once to look at that cloud patch, about 30 by 40 miles wide. I wanted to see how far up I was. And... Uh, I didn't like that because uh, I couldn't breathe good in the wind. You don't have any sensation of falling in a case like that. You just feel as if you're on a jet of air, see. The only time you feel falling is when you're accelerating, accelerating, say, up to whatever speed you end up at. So uh, I rolled back over and didn't know about skydiving then, or I could have probably maneuvered out of it. But I could have been hit by something else, because there were many pieces of wreckage. And uh, so I just watched and took a chance. And uh, I was going to look again, and all of a sudden, poof, I went through that cloud layer. Uh, I figured I had another half a minute or so, but I didn't. And there was the ground, you know. And I said, oh, oh, too late, too late. I pulled that thing, but it functioned perfectly. Crack. It opened, and then bang, crush. I hit the ground, and I hit so hard. It was uh, it's a wonder it didn't kill me. But my shoulders struck my knees, and uh, then my head hit the ground, gave me a, a neck that still hurts today. <laughs> and uh, dislocated both shoulders. That's how f much force there was there. All my joints, a little later, had been injured, so they all swelled up, knees, elbows, everything, from that awful jolt. The Bombay and that left wing landed about 300 feet to one side, and the wing was tilted uh, leaning against some trees a little bit. Of course, the bomb bay and the bombs were pretty well buried in the ground, about level. And I, I landed in this area of about three acres, and almost every bit of the wreckage except the right wing landed in that small space. It was so unusual because, as I say, usually it's scattered. Uh, there was other debris around, some still floating. The tail came down, oh, seven or eight minutes. Not seven or eight minutes, maybe, but uh, quite a while after I'd arrived there. And, but I knew that with that wing tilted up and the fuel running down to the fire, that the bombs were going to go. Uh, I figured when they got about red hot, even though they were safetyed, they, they would go. Well, I had an awful time to get out of my harness with those dislocated shoulders, and of course I felt kind of foggy. Um, I started to crawl and push myself 
with my feet, you know, because I saw a little wood road. It had a little depression, a little over a foot deep on the other side of it. And then I saw my engineer's body. It wasn't 30 feet from me. So I crawled over there and identified him. I had to turn him over and shoot hadn't opened. And uh, so then I continued and I didn't think I could make it to the road. And then I remembered I had uh, morphine in my little uh, pack on my. So I got that out and I put a shot in. And then I made it, rolled over that road and into that little ditch. And then the bombs went off. And uh, it pushed me away first. And then there was a tremendous vacuum so that my lungs and stomach expanded, you know, so that uh, it didn't seem as if I could recover from that. And then the air came back in and dragged me through the underbrush and the woods around this clearing. Uh, almost to the uh, little wood road. And uh, I just lay there trying to get my breath and, uh, you know, wondering <laughs> what would happen next. And then the, uh, that's when I saw the tail come down, land in the treetops. Didn't even hit the ground. My The body of my engineer, or my tail gunner, was in it. Uh, he apparently was killed by shrapnel when we were struck. Uh, the rest of the men drifted in their parachutes, and they came down about 20 miles back, fortunately on land and not in the water. So I lay there quite a while, and pretty soon two boys came, about 16, one blonde and one black hair. The blonde one reached down and trying to shake my hands. Imagine with my shoulders the way they were. He said, I'm a Dutchman, I'm a Dutchman. I said, well, this isn't Holland. And the other boy, oh, he was a mean little cuss. <laughs> Hitler youth, probably. He says, nein, das ist Deutschland, he says. In other words, I knew that, but uh, anyway. Then I saw what looked like maybe a military man, probably a home guard, just uh, some kind of a uniform on coming down the road, he's a great, tall, the most homeliest man I'd seen up to that point. And he was trying to get his pistol out. He had a great big one. Finally, he got right up to me, and he had that thing right in my face, and, he, and it was cocked. I said, oh, this crazy guy's going to do me in right here. And uh, he said, pistol, pistol. He won my pistol. Well, I didn't carry a pistol, and I advised the crew not to. Because if you came down and you shot someone, a civilian or a military, that's the death warrant for your crew and for a lot more that would come down. See? Now, if you went to occupied France uh, and you were shot down, you might need it. You might be able to get by. So anyway, uh, he was shaking, you know, and he, he was uh, very nervous. His sweat coming off from him. And, uh, about that time, these other people came. There was a hospital on a hill a little over a half mile away. These were for burn victims from Hamburg, where I was going, because Hamburg was burned terribly, and the whole city, firestorms. 
These people were there on an inspection that day, half civilian, half military. But the civilians were the ones that reached me first. And oh, they were vicious. Of course, you hardly blame them. But uh, boy, they yanked me around and dragged me to a sitting position in the road and uh, punched me, kicked me, called me every kind of name, gangster bastard, terror flieger, <laughs> all that. Uh, and then stomped on me. And I said, these people are going to finish me off. Uh, they, they said, uh, asked me if I was English. And a woman came along pushing her bike through the wood road there. She said, don't tell them you're English. She said, even if you are. She said, they'll hang you. And they were. They were hanging the English. Because, see, they bombed cities. We bombed industrial and military targets. So anyway, about that time, the military got there, and they uh, drove off the civilians at gunpoint, and they took me up to that hospital, not to treat me, but that was the only place around there. The Burgomeister came in, mayor of the town, punched me right in the face the first thing, took everything that they'd taken out of my pockets, billfold and watch and everything, and uh, they could see I wasn't very effective, so they just let me slide down and sit on the floor. Uh, boy, I was uh, <laughs> not in very good shape to go to the train for my next trip to the prison camp. And on the way there, there were about 40 of us being moved. And as we approached the station, the civilians came out, and they were bound they were going to get us away from the guards. And the guards got pretty nervous too. But finally, uh, a high-ranking officer saw what was going on. He came over, and he chewed them out, and he swore left and right, and uh, the people backed off a little. But once they got it, we were inside the car in the train. Those people were so frantic, they were just beating on the windows and, you know, threatening. I don't think anybody would have survived if the military hadn't been there. But uh, that's what happened to a lot of prisoners. I was in... Uh, Poland at Stalag Luft III, which was uh, all airmen, uh, all aviators, all officers. We also had different compounds of British, Australians, New Zealanders, and so on. The enlisted men were taken off and put to work. That's been traditional through most wars. Oh, really? Oh, yes. And the Germans are very uh, rigid about officers. Mm -hmm. Uh, a German officer wouldn't ever pick up a shovel, you know, or, or wheel a wheelbarrow out of the way, or, and he'd call an enlisted man to do it. Uh, that's just the way they were. And I have to say that the, uh, uh, they did handle the Americans pretty much under the Geneva Convention as long as they could. But when the transport system broke down and they couldn't move the food and they were desperate, and they had millions and millions of prisoners, uh, not all military prisoners, uh, slave laborers that they'd collect, 
Uh, you know, we might bomb a factory and kill two or 3,000 of these slave laborers. Well, they just had a few more trainloads brought in, go out and round them up, different countries. Um, they said at one time they probably had as many as 10 million prisoners in Germany or under German control. Uh, the Russians, uh, they collected by the millions. The first year of the war, they had over three million Russian prisoners, and they were going to put them to work. But some of them rode almost a thousand miles in boxcars with nothing to eat or drink, and half of them were dead when they got there. Uh, the Americans fared the best of any of them. Now, uh, one case... Uh, Stalag Luft III, where I was, was where the Great Escape took place, that you've probably heard about. We had tunnels all over underground, 30 feet down they were, because they could listen to 25 feet. And they had tunnels to communicate between the different compounds. If seven men escaped from this one some way, why well, they'd come from the other one to be counted for a few days, see? And give them a chance to get away better. But uh, these uh, nearly 70 prisoners escaped through this tunnel. Uh, only three uh, were not recaptured, and I've met two of them. They recovered the rest of them, but almost 60 were executed. And that was something that our, well, the German commandant of our prison was a wonderful gentleman. He'd fought in World War One, and, and in Spain during the Civil War, and the Russian front, Norway, North Africa, and then he was in charge of this prison. He was so infuriated when they executed those prisoners that he complained to Berlin until Hitler ordered him to Berlin and they didn't hear any more about him. That's, that was the, the serious things. Otherwise, they did the best they could. Now, we were under control of the Luftwaffe at Stalag Luft III until a while after that great escape. Then the SS took over, and they had the Wehrmacht, which is a German army, as uh, doing the work and as guards. Uh, the SS were terrible, and... Uh, you you may know that uh, three times Hitler ordered all Allied airmen destroyed. Uh, he wanted to kill all of them because of the bombing. And the German high command argued against that for a number of reasons. One, humanitarian. But the main thing was they were facing unconditional surrender to the Allies. They realized the war was lost. Hitler wouldn't even hear about it. Um, they envisioned holding the airmen especially as hostages to bargain with, bargaining chips. And then at the end, Hitler was thinking of uh, having a redoubt up in the Alps near Birch's Garden if he could get there himself, which he didn't. He was trapped and committed suicide the day after we were liberated. But the uh, people who were supporting him thought that they could uh, use 
us as a, uh, what would you call it, a, a buffer, you know, uh, protect the people around Hitler for however long. So three times we were, Hitler ordered us executed. And at the end, in the prison where I was, Himmler himself had sent a telegram to the commander of that prison, which was north of Munich, not far from Dachau. Uh, said, destroy all Allied airmen before recapture. There were 130,000 in that prison. We weren't all airmen by that time. You could hardly move without touching someone. Terrible conditions, not enough food, uh, uh, no sewer systems working, slit trenches filled, and no place to dig more. Uh, it was really bad. Um, but uh, we found that they had laid pipes, one of uh, gasoline and one of lethal gas, through the prison. They intended to not only kill the people with gas, but to burn it. And the day we were liberated, that morning, we noticed that the guards had their flap open on their case for the gas mask. The dogs had the gas mask on, see, uh, that they, most of them had. And uh, we were very fortunate because uh, during the forenoon of that day, we could hear the tanks. We'd heard them all night, grinding and shifting gears, and they were right there. Uh, the Luftwaffe came over and took over the prison by force from the SS and the, and the Wehrmacht. And they had to, quite a fight with them. They came over and took over the prison. So when our people came in, uh, they held the, the lid on, so to speak. And that was quite a day. 29th of April, 45. They came in about noon. And right off, that swastika flag came down, let me tell you and uh, put up the real flag. About, uh, we'd been there about eight days, seven or eight days after we were liberated, and uh, Patton finally got the word right down from Eisenhower that every tra truck within reasonable distance, he said, I want them there, right off. And so they began coming and they trucked us out to an airfield or to airfields and we flew out to France. I had five weeks to recover on the coast of France, and very pleasant. And uh, the most critical people, of course, were flown home, and then the next batch were sent by ship, and some of us that could walk around and get along good just stayed there and put on weight. Uh, then they got us ready to go, and on the ship I came home on, it was a Vermont captain from St. Albans. He'd been in World War I. They called him back for the Merchant Marine at the beginning of World War II. And there was one other Vermonters on there from Westfield, Vermont. So he and I uh, made ourselves known to the captain 
and just the three Vermonters on that ship, brand new ship too. He'd lost his in a hurricane the year before. And uh, he had us up on the bridge to watch things and he had us to his quarters every afternoon for ginger ale and jelly roll. That's what he, he preferred for his snack. And uh, he left the convoy. We went across to Southampton, started out the next day with a huge convoy because there were still submarines out there. Well, it wasn't long we were off by ourselves. He had that thing going full speed and he set a record for that type of ship to New York. And uh, it was pretty nice to have somebody like that on there. They're all prisoners, ex-prisoners on the ship. The poor enlisted men again, they were down in the hold with hammocks. Oh, I couldn't even go down there. They were all seasick. We were up where we had fairly decent rooms and fresh air, get out on the deck. And I was given credit for possibly saving two ships. Uh, I was up in the, on the bridge, it was a beautiful day, not a cloud anywhere, ocean like glass. We were plowing along and had the automatic pilot was clicking the wheel back and forth and they were, I don't know what they were all doing, but I looked out there and on the horizon I could see this ship coming. I looked right down the center line of it and I kept an eye open. Pretty soon I said, wow, that thing's getting close fast. So I told the captain, I said, I said, it's none of my business, but I said, oh boy, he put those fellows to work, let me tell you. They spun that wheel, we turned to the right, and that other ship never changed course. It passed us, I don't think there was 50 feet between us. And the kids on it, I say kids or young guys, probably going over for the occupation, you know, in Germany. And they thought it was a great thing. They were yelling and clapping and waving. And hell, we could have both come together at that speed and no one would ever know, you know, what happened. And the captain, oh, he thanked me profusely and apologized that someone wasn't watching. He said, you really have good eyesight. And I said, well, it's not so much eyesight as self-preservation <laughs> but anyway he got us into New York we arrived there on my birthday and there was dense fog we had to just creep and sometimes had to stop as we approached the harbor and uh, finally it loosened up a little bit and uh, we looked ahead and this was surrealistic almost but this is just the way it was there was a bowl in the clouds like this, and the sun was shining down in there, and right in the middle was the Statue of Liberty. You couldn't see the base. That was in the fog. And the captain said, we're right on the bridge. He said, well, he said, if you look ahead, you'll see something you'll never forget. He was right. This show was edited down from Francis's original interview to focus on his POW experience. To access the full interview and any other interviews you hear on this show, you can always contact us at vtfolklife.org. 
As of January 2019, Francis is 95 years old and living in a veteran's home in Land Lakes, Florida. Thanks to John Angier Jr. for talking with me as we were working on this show. For more stories from veterans in Vermont, you can listen to the Prisoners of War documentary. You'll find a link in the show notes for this episode, available at vtfolklife.org untapped. Episodes are released monthly, so check back in February to hear more of Vermont Untapped. Our theme music, Variations on Green Mountain Petronella, was performed by Dave Hoy. Our logo was designed by Kat Rizos. Vermont Untapped is produced by Erica Frigiuelli and me, Mary Wesley. Thanks for listening.